Gracious God, it is our prayer that you give us eyes to see, eyes of our heart, eyes of our soul, that you, Spirit, would speak to us as you have spoken to us through prayer, the preaching of your word. We pray that you would open our hearts to hear your word to us this morning. It's in your name we pray, the powerful, saving name of Christ Jesus. Amen. If you have your copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Many of you, if not all of you, know that this past week, Billy Graham at the age of 99 died this past week. And uh, Billy Graham, echoing the words of the great evangelist D.L. Moody of the 19th century, said... A few years before this past week, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address because I've gone into the presence of God. And so we celebrate the faithfulness of a man of God who for decades so faithfully and boldly and courageously preached the gospel and understanding the unique historical reality that this past week when he was ushered into the presence of the one that he told millions upon millions of people that they that they're literally millions of people that are in heaven because of the clarity of the gospel that was proclaimed by this messenger I was 13 years old when I became a Christian and I liked to read then so I thought I'm I went to read a book about the Christian faith. I went to my church library. I had no idea where to start. So I got the, the first book that I could kind of lay my hands on, which was Billy Graham's Angels book. When I was 16, 17 years old, uh, the first autobiography that really struck my heart was Just As I Am, the autobiography of Billy Graham and the Modesto Manifesto that Cliff Barrows and George Beverly Shea and Billy Graham in, in a day and age which televangelists have been uh, called in the muck and the mire of scandal. Although Billy Graham, we would know, is, is not a person that is imperfect. He was a person who much of his ministry was able to flourish because of the integrity and the, uh, the public witness of that servant. So we are all here uh, celebrating his God and the very clarity of our God that he proclaimed for generations. Genesis chapter 4 is where we are this morning as we continue in this series in Genesis 1 through 11 entitled Genesis Act 1. And as we're looking at the story of, the, of Cain and Abel, uh, I'm wondering if many of you saw a movie from a few years ago that starred Gwyneth Paltrow, Matt Damon. It was called Contagion. It is not a Valentine's movie. It is not a, it's not a rom-com. This is not a uh, Julia Roberts kind of meets someone. I mean, it's, it's, not a, it's not something you watch on the Hallmark Channel. It's, it's a story of the HEV-1, this fictional story, HEV-1 virus that spreads in the United States. It causes seizures and then uh, a quick, untimely death. It's the story of medical researchers uh, trying to scatter to come up with a vaccination. 2.6 million Americans die. 26 million worldwide die because of this contagion that spreads and this pandemic that occurs. 
At the very end of the movie, there's this kind of montage that gives us patient zero. It shows this bat and then this pig and this pig that is then slaughtered. And then ultimately this casino chef that is handling the pig. And then ultimately the casino chef that has a casual handshake. And so that begins the contagion that spreads the MEV1 virus. Genesis chapter 4 is a passage that describes to us the contagion of sin and how it spreads in a way that affects and infects every aspect of our humanity. That this contagion is much worse than any kind of physical uh, contagion that spreads, but rather it is a spiritual contagion that not only has earthly or earthly consequences and ramifications, but, but also eternal Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1. You could read along with me in your copy of God's Word. We read, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. So the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground... It shall no longer yield to you its strength. You should be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him shall attack him. And Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Chapter 4, the contagion of sin spreads, and we have the account of the first premeditated homicide. We have the account of how patient zero Eve moves to Adam, and then sibling rivalry occurs, and then murder occurs. If you just go three verses past where we stopped in this uh, story of Cain and Abel, you see a gentleman by the name of Lamech who has two wives, and so you have polygamy that's introduced in chapter 4. In Genesis 1 and 2, you have two gifts that are given to uh, the creation of man, the imago Dei, the image of God, that with this murder, so that image is trying to be stomped out. So you have the pollution of God's good gift, and then you have the, the gift of marriage that is polluted by verse 19 of chapter 4. So both two good original gifts of God. 
in this parasitic way that sin spreads and Satan works, both of these gifts are infected and both of these gifts are affected. And I think it's important for us to, to understand as we're here that all of us live east of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that Eve and Adam are cast out of the garden east of Eden. Genesis chapter 4, we have this refrain, east of Eden. Uh, we'll get to Genesis chapter 13, and, and Lot and Abram and all their herds, they come to this fork in the road, and Lot goes east. Because the land looks good and fertile, and he goes toward Sodom and Gomorrah. East of Eden is not just a title for a Sambet book, but it is a refrain in these early chapters of the book of Genesis that talk about how we are prone to move east of Eden from that place of this unmediated, holy relationship with our Creator, God. Now the story is pretty simple, at least it seems on the outset. Eve bore two sons, Cain and Abel. In Genesis chapter 4, we don't at least see it in the text explicitly, but Cain and Abel have it in their sense to, to give offerings of worship to God. Abel brings an offering from the flock, came from the fruit of the ground. God accepts Abel's offering, rejects Cain's offering. Cain is jealous, envious, ultimately leads to murder of his brother Abel. God comes to Cain. Much like God came in Genesis 3 to Adam, and there's this question, where's your brother? Much like God asked a question to Adam and Eve there in the garden. It's so a rhetorical question. Obviously, God knows. And just like Adam, so Cain will shift the blame. Am I my brother's keeper? Just as his father would say, you put her here. Sin has come my way because ultimately of your decision, her decision... So Cain is shifting responsibility here. And the punishment given to Cain is that the ground will no longer yield a bountiful harvest. Here is Cain, a worker of the ground. The irony is that the ground he uses to conceal his brother's death will ultimately uh, be used to cut him off as he is a nomad and a, and a wanderer from then on out, east of Eden from the presence of the Lord. Or is he from the presence of the Lord? John Raleigh is a, is a painter. Some of you maybe have seen this work from 1958. Cain and Abel, aptly described and, and titled here. You have Cain on my left, on your right. You have Abel on my right here. So you see Abel. You, you have the sense of the, the bountiful spread of his flock as, as symbolized here in the painting here. It seems that his flock just goes on and on and on. The light kind of cascading upon him. Even the presence of Abel is in contrast to his brother. You have this willowing, tall figure looking off to the side here as the light shines upon him. And then you have Cain. Notice, notice how Cain is confined. Notice how his space is defined. Notice as he's looking up, sort of like a Victor Hugo um, character from Hunchback of Notre Dame, as he's looking up and he's stocky and he's mad and you see it in his eyes as he's looking to his brother with envy and jealousy upon his brother in this scene. And this is what happens right before, right before he kills his brother. 
And the question oftentimes as we look at this passage is, is it's not what happened, because it seems clear what happened, but, but why? Why the light upon Abel? Why the darkness upon Cain? Why does God accept one offering, reject the other offering? Looking at our passage in Genesis chapter 4, we read in verse 3 that Cain brings his offerings from the fruit of the ground. Abel, in a little bit more of a description, brings the firstborn of the flock. There's a sense in which we could read into this passage that Abel is bringing God his best, and Cain is bringing God his leftovers. There's more to this passage. In verse 4, we see the sequence in the sequence of the words here. In verse 4 of chapter 4, the Lord had regard first for Abel and then his offering. That Abel's heart seems to be right with God. Cain's heart is not right. And it seems to be what differentiates their offering is the condition of the gift giver and not the nature necessarily of the gift. That the, that the gift represents their hearts. And the nature of their hearts it demands the type of gift that they give to God. The anonymous writer of the book of Hebrews in the 11th chapter, verse 4, would say this, by faith, by faith, that descriptive words, by faith, Abel offered to God, what, a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. There's a sense in which Cain's heart is not right with God. And because of his inner reality, so there's an outward manifestation of that. And so God is judging the, the heart of Cain. So what do we do with a passage like this? I mean, there's, there's, there's a temptation to read a passage like this and to make this really straightforward, trite type of application. I mean, don't be like Cain. So there's a sense Cain was jealous. Don't be jealous like Cain. Cain killed his brother, don't kill your brother like Cain. Cain was envious, don't be envious like Cain. Cain's heart's not right with God, make your heart right with God. But there's a sense in which the more we say, don't be like Cain, the more we realize that we actually are like Cain. Now I know that some of you reject that. I know some of you are like, I I don't like my sister. She gets on my nerves a little bit, but I've never tried to kill her. My boys, I have three kids, and my three boys, my two oldest, are 19 months apart from one another. And I think Cain and Abel is their favorite Bible passage. They're fascinated. It's like, read it again, Dad. Read it again. There's, there's too much identification with the story with my brother, or with, with, with the whole sibling. But if you've had brothers, you know what it's like. You're like puppy dogs, wrestling. This is your love language, is to fight. No blood, no foul, that's what we say. That's what I say. Danielle says that that sounds like an excuse and not a mantra, but that's a whole other sermon in and of itself right there. But back to the passage right here. The more we look into our heart, the more that we recognize that the spirit of Cain still resides in us. Jesus would say it this way 
in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, you've heard that it was said of, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So it is important for all of us in this room to understand that you do not have to be sentenced to life in prison, in a penitentiary, for more, for murder, for uh, to understand that the spirit of Cain still resides in your heart and the frustration that you have at work. The anger that you have with a co-worker. The envy that, that has a way of, of moving into your family life. The, the frustration and the disdain that you have for people that, that emerges. And all of us in this room, while we not, might not be living in that place right now, we've traveled through those roads and we will travel through those roads because the spirit of Cain is alive and well for all of us in this room that live east of Eden. So what hope do we have for our Cain-like hearts? What hope do we have when envy rears its head, jealousy rears its head, frustration and anger rears its head? What hope do we have? Well, it's important to see in this passage that hope is found, and it's found for our Cain-like heart in an Abel-like death. Abel is the first death in the Bible, the death of the innocent brother. Violent, cruel death. And it is important for you to understand, for me to understand, for us to understand that God has ultimately provided an Abel-like death in His firstborn of creation. When Christ Jesus dies as the perfect, innocent one, that the cruel hands, the violent hands of of those who have these trumped up charges against him, understand that when he dies, the substitutionary death upon the cross for you, the sacrificial death upon the cross, that, that all of our anger is placed upon him, that all of our bitterness is placed upon him, that all of our envy is placed upon him, that the death of the perfect, able, like Son of God gives us hope. Now, I know that some of you are saying, well, you know, grace is great, but it isn't something that can extend to me. If, I mean, if you just really knew what I have done and what I have thought, you would understand that I'm a little further east of Eden than most people in this room are. And so, yeah, maybe grace extends to, to, to good Billy Graham-like people, but for me and for what I've done and what I've thought, eh, there's just not grace coming my way. And I think it's important to go back to this passage and look again at verses 15 and 16 and think about the mark of Cain. Is it punishment or is it grace? Rabbis looking upon this passage, uh, some speculated that the mark of Cain was, was a dog that accompanied Cain in his nomadic wanderings. Others speculated that it was somewhat of an ancient Near Eastern tattoo that was placed upon him to mark, but what we don't know exactly what it looked like, but we certainly know what it meant. Cain feels as if he, because of what he has done to his brother, if he is going to be one who is the object of those that he will come in contact with and that will ultimately kill him. And so God places a mark upon him to signify, I have not abandoned this one. I am protecting this one. So 
the original Cain in the original act of, of, of sin is given grace by God and protection by God. And it is important for you and for me and for all of us in this room to understand that as Abel gave his best gift, so we understand that our Heavenly Father has given His best gift. As Abel gives this firstborn, so our Heavenly Father has given the firstborn of all creation. God has given His best, so we are called not to earn His love, but in gratitude for what He has given us, so we are freed and called to give to God in response to what He has given to us our best. Now, all of us will give because they're tainted by our human hands. All of us will give gifts of imperfection. But there is a sense in which all of us in life have to answer the question in response to what God has given us. Are we giving God our best or are we giving God our leftovers? A couple years ago, maybe a couple weeks ago, maybe we can imagine the story that the new boss that moves into town, you host at your home. So you can imagine the preparation that you would need to maybe impress your new boss. She comes with her family. He comes with her family. They're seated in the living room. And then you realize the social uh, uh, taboo that you, you actually didn't cook anything. And so you have to go in there and you get the solo red cups out. And then you get the paper plates out. And then you go rummaging through the refrigerator and all you see is four day old little Caesars and so you call out to the living room hey boss uh, pepperoni or sausage which one will it be 60 seconds I can have it heated up for you you see some leftover crazy bread it's got a little bit of mold so you just cut it off because you want to be polite and what are you doing? You, you, you would never do this. It, it's farcical in every way to imagine this because why? Uh, the prestige of the person demands not our leftovers that are warmed over, but it demands our best attention, our best preparation. In some respects, all of life is answering the question, as believers, what will we give to God in light of what He's given to us? Paul would say in Romans chapter 12, in this wonderful transitional passage, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, I urge you, brothers, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship, holy and acceptable unto God. In view of the first 11 chapters, in, in view of the able-like death, in view of God the Father seeing us in our Cain-like hearts east of Eden, so God has acted and He's acted with His best. So in view of that, in light of His mercy, offer your bodies. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message of bodies because he says, offer your everyday, getting up, going to bed. Going to work, going to school, life. What, what Peterson gets with that word bodies is, is that ultimately he is inviting us to give him all of ourself. Not to earn his love, but in light of what has been earned for us on the cross through the able-like death of the firstborn of creation. And so the question that all of us have to ask is, as we've come into this place, are we warming over the leftovers 
Are we offering to God our best? Or are we warming over the leftovers of our time and saying, God, I've got a little bit of margin, and so I'll serve you in these specific areas, but not beyond that. And what do we hear? We hear the sound of the microwave of our spiritual life dinging as we've warmed over the leftovers and offered it to Him. God, I will give you sacrificially as these plates, these plates pass. But, but I, I tell you, it's February the 26th, and so whatever I have left over at the end of the month, that I'll give to you. And what do we hear? We hear the sound of the microwave dinging. It was always warmed over the leftovers of our resources. All of us in this room are invited, not just on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, to, to give to God an offering through prayer and adoration, through uh, dwelling in His Word. And all of us have to answer, are we giving to God the, the best of our day at, at night or in the morning, in the middle of the day? Are we giving Him the best of our day in attention to His Word, listening to Him? Or do we hear the sound of the microwave dinging as we've warmed over the leftovers. God has given us His best in the able, like death of the firstborn of all creation. And that frees us, empowers us, not to feel that we have to earn His love, but knowing that God saw us in our Cain-like hearts far east of Eden, and He said, I will give them my best. So this week, today, our life, our best, are the warmed-over leftovers. Let us pray.